you know, just stressing like, hey, this all is so fragile and it won't be here if we do not treat it just as fragile as it is. You know, so I think it, uh, it was a point of inflection and just kind of this reckoning. And everyone realized, wow, okay, well, yeah, what it had grown to was not sustainable, but we just simply need it still. And what do we have to do to manage it better and continue allowing these trails to uplift our community economically, but not to the point of self-destruction? You know, that was... Welcome to Trail Effect episode 32. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Recording and editing podcasts can be challenging at times especially when this is being performed online, which is necessary to get the personalities and content for this show that is diverse and great. With it, there are some slight audio issues with this episode, as there is some intermittent clicking in the background that I did my best to reduce, but ultimately could not remove entirely. This episode features Devin O'Neill. Devin is a freelance journalist who has written some extensive articles on access in relation to mountain biking. Access for mountain biking always raises concerns and opinions with people, because more often than not, this access turns political, due to most access being on public lands. Regardless, without access, we do not have amazing places to ride. We also discuss the topic of mental health, and the issue our society faces with mental health. So while this episode tackles some tough issues, it's definitely still entertaining, and there's a lot to take away. Support for Trailfet comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Our sport, mountain biking, is growing. You can't get a bike right now. You can't get components. You can't get your bike tuned. There, it is, there's like no room for people who are poor planners or whatever, you know, just uh, mountain bikers who have kind of operated in a traditional way for decades. And that's how much growth is happening. And growth is great. And it props up these businesses. And the industry is cruising right along. But growth brings, you know, these kind of um, problems that you can't foresee in a lot of ways. And it's dangerous. Growth is actually dangerous to our access equation. So I think probably in the next 10 or 20 years, you're going to see people looking at um, marketing and promoting the sport and bringing people to these destinations. And, you know, new destinations are getting created. And that's all that makes for great stories. Those are stories that. I've written about in the past. Those are travel stories, fun to go check out a new spot and how they get this rad network together and, you know, all the local characters who play a part in it and all that. But I think in the next 10 or 20 years, you're going to see people completely changing how they view the, the nature of growth. You know, it's not all great and happy and safe to our access equation. So. Anyway, that's, uh, I, I'm sure you'll have some questions and we can, we can chat more about that because I do have some thoughts. I don't know if they're, they're like explicit answers at this point, but I think people are going to be wary of these problems more than they have been in the past, you know? Yeah. And at least, you know, this, there's a common theme here and with this access and it just is happening in um, the UP right now with Copper Harbor. Very similar. I almost... I'm not going to say carbon copy to what's going on in Kingdom Trails because every place is unique, but very similar. You know, where access was granted through a handshake agreement to a private property owner's land, 
that property, while it didn't house entire trails, it took core sections of trail out, which makes those trails, at least for, for bike use, it makes those trails really inaccessible. And now the local club is scrambling to figure out how to connect the dots again. Yep. And sometimes it, it could be impossible. And all you can do from that is just learn from that mm-hmm. brutal uppercut that you had to take and, and move along and hope that, you know, you're prepared for it the next time based on the decisions that you make from that lesson, you know? Yeah. And learning is, is the key here, right? Totally. And I mean, that's something that I think uh, our society is often resistant to, you know, it's politically right or wrong. but. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, human beings have a tough time accepting that what happened then could still happen again. And if we can accept that and and just concede in a lot of ways, then we will be better positioned moving forward to not repeat the same mistakes if you even can call them mistakes. You know, I mean, for Kingdom Trails, how could you call that a mistake? They were saving this impoverished part of their state, which needed it. And who could ever think in the mid 90s or even, you know, in the 2000s that mountain biking would experience this boom and that suddenly there would be too many people over 100 miles in this beautiful little village, you know, but that's exactly what happened. And, and it brings these like unintended, probably unforeseeable um, consequences that are just devastating. And they really just they rip at the structure of the whole arrangement, you know, and then, and then it's a significant problem because then it's existential. Should we kick this thing off officially? Go for it. Okay. Here we are with trail effect. I have Devin O'Neill. Devin is a writer for multiple publications over multiple disciplines. He writes, um, and he'll go into this further, but he's done a lot of writing on trail access and mountain biking, but he also does stuff with Alpine skiing and just different outdoor sports. So he's not specific to just mountain biking. He covers the whole gamut and writes for a lot of different publications. So uh, welcome today, Devin. Thanks for having me, Josh. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, Devin, let's, let's dig into how you got to where you are with writing about these places that we all consider great. Yeah, it was a kind of an unintended career uh, in terms of the, the way that it's morphed into uh, what you just described. But, you know, I, uh, I got a liberal arts degree in college uh, in Vermont and lived in Washington, D.C. for a year after college. Worked as a counterterrorism analyst for this giant government contractor. We designed and implemented counterterrorism plans for state and local governments, which were funded by the federal government. Uh, This was in the wake of 9-11. There was a lot of money going around to make sure that what happened uh, wouldn't happen again. And uh, what that translated into was me at 22 years old going into these tiny little farming communities in Indiana and explaining to farmers how to prepare for and then react to a chemical weapons attack on his grain silo, which to me always seemed pretty darn unrealistic and a waste of money. And I was sitting in my cubicle at this 10,000 person company and thinking, I don't know if I want to do this forever or even very long. Um, I'd grown up in the Virgin Islands on St. John and was living with my twin brother at the time in Washington, D.C. And we decided to move to Portland, Oregon, sight unseen, just go check out the Pacific Northwest and stopped in Breckenridge, Colorado to see a friend for one night. Ended up staying here. That was in November of 2002. And I've been here ever since. And, uh, you know, I played a couple sports in college, football and baseball, and really wanted to stay involved with sports and some semblance of a career. So I approached the local newspaper sports editor. We have a daily here that's about a 10,000 circulation newspaper and asked if I could just write sports stories. And he said, yeah, as long as you do it for free. And I had gotten actually some advice um, from... This guy named Bill Dwyer, the former sports editor at the LA Times, who was a friend of a friend. And he, one of his pieces of advice was never work for free, period, end of story. But it was my only way in. So I said, absolutely, I'll write stories for free and started covering like JV girls basketball and 
freshman wrestling and just some random stuff. But um, it taught me that I did like uh, the discipline. And uh, eventually they started paying me 25 bucks a story. And that led to a little bit uh, more visibility. And there was a startup newspaper as well trying to compete with the big dog here. And I went to work for them as their sports guy and eventually went back to the first newspaper, the Summit Daily News, as their sports editor. And uh, then finally broke off and quit that job and became a freelance writer in 2007. Uh, made 18,000 bucks my first year. Also worked at a ski shop. I still work at that ski shop uh, a couple days a week, one, one day a week, depending on the season. And yeah, I, uh, I spent about four years on contract with ESPN, uh, covering action sports, the X Games and Olympic sports here and there. And uh, um, I'm a correspondent now for Outside Magazine and uh, writer for Beta, uh, the new mountain bike magazine, which we can chat about in a few minutes. And uh, just do a bunch of work for a range of publications. It is ultimately a, a hustle. You're always trying to find good stories. And, you know, the hustle is a, a good and a bad. Um, it really does allow you to pursue topics that you're interested in, but it's also draining. Who likes selling other than salesmen? Not, not this guy. So it comes, you know, comes with the territory in this case. And uh, I've still really enjoyed just being on my own schedule, getting work done when I want to get it done, but leave plenty of time for playing. Uh, we live at 10,200 feet, about four miles south of Blue River or of, of Breckenridge in a town called Blue River. And got two little kids and a wife who's very understanding my job and its needs. And uh, here we are, yeah, 13, 14 years later, still making it happen, but with some ups and downs, of course. Yeah, for sure. And living in that community is not cheap. No. Um, there are a lot of, lot of uh, real cool little towns around America, I think, that are experiencing the same things that we're experiencing here, maybe at, uh, at different stages um, and, and financial levels. But it is ultimately the biggest problem, I think, facing every cool mountain town certainly in North America and probably in the world, which is just its desirability comes back to haunt it sometimes. And we can talk about that as it, that as it relates to mountain bike access as well. You know, it's very similar uh, elements that complicate the equation that was maybe in place when we arrived. But, uh, you know, I've been here 19 years and there are folks who've been here 40 who gripe about the same things. But, you know, they started seeing the problems arise, or at least the challenges arise 20 years before I even arrived in this town. So it's, it's a, a, a scale of relativity, but the, the baseline issues are not unique to any of these towns. And I think uh, when one figures out a formula to keep its locals living there and yet not brush the tourism arm that'll be a formula that everyone will try and follow and it does usually start and end with housing in my opinion but uh it's really hard to infringe on the free market and i think every town has that same question of well if we're not going to infringe on the free market too much what can we do and the options are pretty limited yeah one of the areas that you've dove into and this is the area that really caught my attention a handful of years ago is trails and access specifically access for we'll call them wheeled objects otherwise known as mountain bikes you know there really is wheeled access you know at the most basic level and the series that you wrote that really caught my attention was the lines in the dirt for bike magazine as a kind of a preview of what you have coming up here and what we're going to continue to talk about you want to talk about how that got going and what caught your what caught your interest to write about those topics yeah lines in the dirt was a four-part series uh four long-form features focused on different places around the u.s which were struggling with kind of the similar baseline problems um access either being denied or rescinded in some way and um you know access as a whole 
is is the foundation of this sport or this lifestyle, depending on how you want to describe your relationship with mountain biking. And without, you know, these awesome places to ride our bikes, we it's less fun and we wouldn't be as interested in it and we wouldn't, you know, plan our lives around it in a lot of ways. So access, you know, was kind of escalating in terms of the challenges and a lot of it was on federal land, but um, we were trying to figure out how to cover it differently. And my idea was to find, cast a huge net and find, you know, a handful of places that would offer unique challenges, yet allow us to drill down locally and meet local players and like put a face to a lot of these issues that, and, and stances that usually only get covered from kind of that 10,000 foot view and really, you know, hold people's feet to the fire who are denying access and say, why, you know, and on the, on the same token, do the same with mountain bikers, you know, what problems have been created by mountain bikers that have resulted in access being such a challenge here and do it as fairly and comprehensively and transparently as possible. And so we, again, I I mean, I made many inroads with a lot of people around the U S to try and find these places that would make the most sense to focus on. And, uh, we found four, uh, Montana, Massachusetts, Northern California, specifically around Marin, which, you know, albeit is the birthplace of the sport and yet has some of the most challenging access problems in in the U.S. And um, we really just desired to bring in a microscope, you know, and for me as a reporter, we did a ton of driving. I had a photographer, Justin Olson, with me, and we basically went into these places and spent a week and just beat the bushes and tried to get as many people on the record who um, we could, who had intimate knowledge of why things were the way they were and not going in saying, oh, hey, mountain bikers are always right. Um, more the opposite. Like what happened here? You know, we're mountain bikers in the wrong. We're their entrenched ways of thinking by, you know, kind of the anti-mountain bike crowd that created this issue or what was the root of it. And uh, then try and spin it forward in a way that helped readers understand, hey, these are the challenges. This is the range of challenges that uh, land managers face, that mountain bike advocates face, that, you know, the person who's been hiking on their backyard trail for 40 years and suddenly has to deal with, you know, a lot of bikes on that same trail and, and what they face. And we just wanted to give it its due in a way that hadn't been done yet. And uh, I appreciate you reading it. And that series, I think, opened some people's eyes to the ways that access problems arise. And it's not always the same, you know, viewpoints or, or uh, clashes that result in these issues um, kind of cropping up. But, um, yeah, we got, uh, I, th- I think that uh, that series helped people understand each other a little better. That was kind of one of the goals. Then I started getting a lot of different uh, emails and calls from people with their own access challenges around the U.S. Um, That was how you and I initially got in touch. And uh, there are access challenges everywhere. And as one person put it to me, if you don't, if you have like your beautiful little mountain biking utopia and you've never even considered that access could be rescinded, now's the time that you need to start focusing on the structure of that access and you know, what are its weak points? What are the vulnerable possible issues that could crop up, you know, and, and create problems and access is something that is just so delicate at all times because without it, we have nothing. We have dirt roads, we have gravel roads, you know, and, and mountain bikes are way less fun to ride on those things. So that was how that came about. And, uh, it did actually lead to some other stories. Yeah, it's, this is a topic that's obviously very delicate, but it's a topic that I, that obviously you believe and I believe needs to be exposed due to the fact that we, we do need to learn from, you know, from our past so we can create a better future for access for everybody, not just mountain biking, but all people that want to enjoy being outside, you know, and so we're maybe not infringing on other people, but at the same time, we can still get our own, have our own fun and, and do what we're doing. Yeah. Um, what are, what are some of the other things you've gotten to, 
write about, you know, that, that are doors that have maybe opened since the lines in the dirt? Um, well, uh, A, we have a, a story coming out hopefully uh, later this year on your hometown in La Crosse, which I think presents a, a really interesting um, issue of its own. And uh, I look forward to seeing that one see the light of day. But I also wrote a story about this little town in Colorado called Netherland. Uh, it's about um, a half hour outside of Boulder, uh, up in the mountains. And they had this awesome backyard network for decades. And yet there's a huge population base um, just down the road from them. And eventually that kind of collision of circumstances started to create problems. and. You know, I think it's important to state here, we're all NIMBYs, you know, by instinct. I'm a NIMBY. I freely admit that. Um, I do try and, and wear the hat of objectivity and just look at things in a fair way. Like, what is fair? You know, if, is it fair for the person who's been riding a trail longer to expect never to have anyone else on it? I don't think that's fair or realistic. but. Is it fair if these trails are in your backyard and, you know, the, the masses um, who live elsewhere arrive to ride them maybe on weekends and, and uh, you know, uh, bring the effects of mass ridership? Is it fair for them to be prohibited from riding there? I don't think that's fair. But is it fair for them to try and regulate what happens to that network and uh, how it is designed or expanded upon or rerouted. Well, that's where this story about Nederland uh, came home to roost. And, and ultimately, you know, there were the Ned locals, Ned heads, if you will, um, who really resisted the, uh, as they saw it, intrusion of, in this case, the Boulder Mountain Bike Alliance coming in and, and, uh, really trying to guide the direction of their backyard trail network. And so that created a kerfuffle and, you know, it definitely created an us versus them and, and uh, a sense of ownership over the trails. And it resulted in definitely some bad blood and a lot of people working through. And this was all, of course, this, this is federal land that we're talking about. So this was all happening under the oversight of, the U.S. Forest Service, and they were trying to, they being the Forest Service officials, were trying to do what's right for the land and for the public at large. And yet, this was such a, a touchy thing because you had this enclave of residents who had, many of them who still worked in Boulder or who had lived there before, who had kind of fled to the mountains to this tiny little town and essentially utopia. And then suddenly they felt, you know, kind of overrun. And it was just a real, I mean, for me, it was edgy and a spicy topic and, you know, two very relatable viewpoints. So it made for a great story. I wrote that one for Outside and uh, they headlined it Single Track Wars, which, you know, for better or worse, that was kind of what was happening here. People were fighting over single track and really fun single track, beautiful, looking out at Rocky Mountain National Park. You know, I mean, none of these access issues are over shitty trails you know that's kind of the bottom line is all these places are so fun to be and it's where we get our release from the stressors of life and everyone gets that but when you get growth man you get unintended consequences and really challenging dynamics that are uh that are not again unique to that place but uh, they really create problems in terms of the, the management of of those trails yeah. And that story in particular, one of the things that I found interesting was the infighting between mountain bikers or what appeared to be, you know. That's something that doesn't happen very often in access disputes. And that was one thing that really attracted me to that issue was that, you know, you have equestrians versus mountain bikers or, you know, hikers versus mountain bikers or just simply like land managers who don't like mountain bikers kind of trying to bring the hammer down or something. But yeah, in this case, absolutely. It was one group of passionate mountain bikers battling another group of passionate mountain bikers over these trails that didn't belong to any of them. Actually, they belong to all of them. So 
it was just this kind of uh, impossible equation. And yet you could relate, you know, I mean, I remember uh, riding with one of the Ned locals and he was just explaining kind of how exasperated they were. And he's like, you know, man, just because you can, just because the law gives you the right, in a sense, doesn't mean you should. And who can argue with that? Absolutely, right? But if you're from Boulder, somebody who works or volunteers for the Boulder Mountain Bike Alliance, then, you know, you could say, well, hey, these aren't your trails. They're for all of us. Yeah, we live down, down the canyon, but what gives? You know, this is public land. This is federal land. And federal land, by definition, gives equal rights to every single person, no matter where you lay your head to rest each night. So, gosh, that was just all you can do. All I ever tried to do is present each side in a fair context. And yes, somebody is going to have the very last quote in the story. So that's a choice that, you know, does come down to the writer or the editor. And the last word counts, but ultimately, you know, it's just give each party their due and then let a reader decide. And we're all such unique creatures that we could read the exact same story and come away with a different takeaway. And I hope that people do. And, and in that case, I hope people did, you know, but that was a sticky one. You're right. Yeah. That's something we never like to see because we're really at the end of the day, all out there to experience the same activity. And one other thing worth pointing out there, Josh, I know you know this from reading that story, but the irony here is that Boulder is known as this absolute outdoor Mecca. And yet, because it was kind of an outdoor hiking and climbing Mecca before mountain bikes were ever ubiquitous in Colorado and elsewhere, there is horrible mountain bike access in Boulder, relatively speaking, you know? So that's why people wanted to come up and ride in Nederland. And, and that's why they go to other networks as well that are, you know, anywhere from a half hour drive to an hour or two hours or whatever, depending on how far they go into the mountains. But, you know, that, that creates problems too. It's, it's, uh, Hey, you might live in this town that is so awesome. and such a great place to be, raise your kids, whatever, have great work opportunities, all that. But if that town doesn't, doesn't bring the, the same kind of ride from home amenities that we all want and seek, then you're going to find it elsewhere. And when you go elsewhere to find it, you're going to be riding trails that other people can ride from their house, you know, and that's, that's where kind of it's almost unavoidable. Yeah. And I don't know if that's something that a lot of people know about Boulder. You know, you hear about Boulder a lot as being an outdoor Mecca. I think a lot of people assume that there's a really good access there for mountain biking. And I've, I've never been there. I've heard that same thing even prior to reading the story. You know, there's a lot of road riding around there. I know a lot of road, road bikers live there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. You find out pretty quick once you get there. <laughs> Because there just aren't that many options, but they're growing, and uh, that's something not to be lost here either. Is that those uh, those options are expanding and relieving some of the pressure where the conflict areas are. Yeah. So we were talking before we officially started about a story that you're working on that will be coming out probably this month after it'll come out before this podcast airs. And it comes out, it's, it's on a region that I've not been to, but have longed to go to for a handful of years. I've been told it's like, and this is not my quote, but I've literally been told it was like, it's like crack for mountain bikers, this community. Um, and, and this was a couple of years ago from a friend of mine. And I believe, you know, up until recently, the model that they have or had is a really good model. And that is... You know, we, we can't always rely on public access or public lands for access. And that model is, you know, relying heavily on private land for access. You want to dive into, into this location and story? Yeah, sure. Um, so this story, it's coming out in the summer issue of Beta, uh, the new National Mountain Bike Magazine run by all the same good folks who used to publish Bike Magazine before that was shuttered. And it's about... Kingdom Trails in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, uh, which is one of, as you put it, you know, one of the best trail networks in America. I think it's been called that, the, the best network in America. Um, it is 83 miles of single track with, in a lot of places, you know, very few rocks, super smooth, flowy, just it is absolutely as good as advertised and 
such a fun place to ride. And it's also being in New England, um, within driving distance of some of the most densely populated metropolises in our country. And that equation alone brings issues. But uh, Kingdom Trails was founded in 1994 officially. And uh, it is entirely built on public land. So uh, I think they went from a few private land, excuse me, entirely built on private land. Uh, They went from a few private landowners kind of allowing trails on their property to now they have 103 uh, private landowners. And the, uh, the whole impetus for creating the Kingdom Trails Network was to uplift that community. It's the poorest region of Vermont um, per capita income. Even today is about 20,000 a year. And uh, the initial visionaries wanted to build something that would bring visitors to this area in the summer. I mean, it's got a, a ski mountain there and it's, it's got some winter recreation attractions, but in the summer it was just dead and dusty. And so these guys built this network and, they got gradually more and more permissions from the landowners, and it grew into this thing that was, as they learned, too big. And no one foresaw that who could have, you know? No, I mean, who could have? No one could have. Not even the guys who envisioned this potentially saving the region, which it did economically. But, you know, they, uh, they went from having about 4,000 visitors a year to now more than 150,000. The revenue of the trails organization went from, you know, 18 grand to now 1.3 million. Um, They actually employ a lot of locals, which is awesome. They do a ton of great things for that community. But the bottom line for some of the landowners, as use grew, was we don't get any company. We have no incentive to provide access. So why do we? And for some people, you know, they, they are still absolutely sold on the common good. This is for the common good of this region and it'll help your neighbor. It'll infuse money into this region, which trickles down. And all of those things were still true throughout this period. But, you know, um, just simply the sheer volume of riders and the lack of infrastructure to support them, you know, parking and lodging and, um, restaurant, you know, just to get a seat at a bar was like a long wait in a, in a lot of cases. And for locals, you know, they're, they're not by law. So in Vermont, if you allow, let's say, uh, the forestry industry logging to come in and use your land and take out trees and make their money, you can get compensated without losing the liability protection that allows you to even think of putting other people on your land, right? But for recreation, in this case, mountain biking, the same law doesn't apply. So you literally, if you want to get compensated for letting tens of thousands of people on your private property each year, you can't unless you want to waive your liability protection and give them the right to sue you or something. If they hit a route and didn't think they should have hit it or whatever that cockamamie scenario might be. So it came to a head in December of 2019. Well, actually, in in November of that year, uh, the biggest landowner in the area, a fifth generation Vermonter named Gary Burrington and his wife, Sue. Um, Gary owns a uh, a road and bridge construction company, but he's not a mountain biker. And and, uh, Sue's an equestrian. And, you know, they live on this beautiful ridge called Darling, Darling Hill. And it separates the east and west branches of the Pesumsic River. And it is just a stunning place to reside. It is also absolutely the epicenter and always has been of the Kingdom Trails Network. So they finally had had, it, had enough. And, you know, they felt like they couldn't use their own land in the ways that they wanted because of the masses of mountain bikers. And so they rescinded access and they informed the Kingdom Trails Association that they were doing so. And a couple of their neighbors joined them in that. And uh, it just blew up. And the association um, kind of turtled and, and they didn't know what to do. You know, this, this was a crisis that no one could have foreseen. And, and well, at least no one did foresee. Now, looking back, you know, of course, hindsight's always much clearer. But 
they didn't know how to handle it. And it just turned mountain bikers against each other, locals against visitors, whose fault was it? There was a lot of blame being passed around. And um, then the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So it shut down everything. And last year, you know, there were no Canadians. In, in general, 40% of their visitors are Canadians. 85% of their visitors are from out of state. Um, but ridership was down significantly last year. And everyone kind of, you know, tried to wait it out and, and see what this closure, they lost 13 miles of trail. But more than that, they lost these three iconic, they call them the three T's uh, trails. And it interrupted the connectivity, which had made that network's presence on Darling Hill so beautiful. And so for a year and a half, you know, it was just kind of this simmering, what's going to happen? You know, what is it? Because when the Burringtons uh, pulled their land, everyone wondered, well, is this the start of a domino effect? You know, will, will all the private landowners now be like, well, what are we, we're not getting anything out of this. We don't own a business or a bar or whatever. Those are the landowners in the minority there. So why are we still permitting this when, when it's kind of outgrown its intended presence here? And uh, so I, yeah, I spent a week there in uh, May last month and really just tried to talk to everybody in person and help uh, spin it forward a little bit and show what lessons have been learned and how that will guide the management of that network uh, moving forward. Because for a long time, Kingdom Trails was the success story for creating this bounty of awesomeness when you didn't have a ton of public land to work with. And a lot of places don't, you know, out West, it is filled with public land and elsewhere it's just simply not and the the challenge of creating a real awesome place to ride your mountain bike are uh the, the, those challenges are much more significant so they figured it out and yet then suddenly once you open that door it's really hard to close it and that that uh lesson was shown so Ultimately, it woke um, everyone up in that community and they realized how frail their deck of cards, as a lot of people describe it, really truly is. And, and they're managing it differently. They're imposing much more of a need to be respectful on visitors and, you know, just stressing like, hey, this all is so fragile and it won't be here if we do not treat it just as fragile as it is. You know, so I think it... Uh, it was a point of inflection and just kind of this reckoning and everyone realized, wow, okay, well, yeah, what it had grown to was not sustainable, but we just simply need it still. And what do we have to do to manage it better and continue allowing these trails to uplift our community economically, but not to the point of self-destruction. You know, that was, it was all self-inflicted what had happened, but you know, again, like no one, Back then, no one, mountain biking was so small, you know, the outdoor industry had not grown to anything close to what it is now. Certainly not the pandemic, you know, which, which will bring many more people, I believe, in, in the future to all of our little nooks and crannies that are awesome. So it created everybody, to, it, it created an opportunity for everybody to learn and, and take a step back and listen to each other and figure out, okay, like, what's the more sustainable way forward here? And I think that that's happened beautifully actually for the kingdom trails association and uh everyone who lives there grew up there you know rides or not rides like how do we do this better basically and so yeah that that story was a fascinating one to get into i knocked on the burrington's door one afternoon and got to talk to them for an hour and they're really reasonable people and it's hard to argue with their rationale in this case and even locals who were devastated by the loss of those trails they, they're like we can't argue with them absolutely if you can't own your own land, I mean, Vermont, you pay the fifth highest property taxes in America. So if you're paying those property taxes on hundreds of acres and you're reaping zero benefits, and then suddenly you can't even use your land, walk down to your pond, walk the trails that have been created on your property because the traffic is so great, then yeah, what's in it for you? Why would you continue to enable that? I think uh, as painful as it's been for locals there, it did um, create a learning opportunity that people are learning from and, and heeding the lessons learned. So in that sense, um, there has been a positive outcome, but, uh, it was also, I think 
you know, maybe some some folks elsewhere who ride on public or on private land will read this story and and learn about the precarious nature of their own access arrangement and uh, maybe take steps to reinforce that so that everyone isn't, you know, ultimately pitted against each other if if push comes to shove with simple reality of growth. And growth is a really tough, dangerous thing. We don't want to give too much of the article away because we definitely want everyone to get out and, and read it. But on the topic of just public and private land, and this has came up in another uh, podcast interview of mine that hasn't been published yet, but will be out before this one comes out. And that is having that diversity of public and private, especially when it comes to, you know, if you have pockets of public land and you want to connect those pockets of public land and not have to get onto the public road infrastructure. You know, there is, there's definite advantages to, to being able to make inroads with private property owners some way to be able to get access. And, you know, I've thought about this locally where I live a handful of times. How can, how can we incentivize private property owners to want to provide that ac- access in a similar way that you just talked about with, with like the way they're incentivized to the logging industry or the way they're incentivized by their means you know, is it, a, is it a tax break? Is it something that we can do or some kind of way that we can implement? So there is incentive for, you know, maybe it's just a corridor onto a piece of property, you know, to, to get that access that's for the public good that does benefit the community, but also provides a benefit for the owner of that land or owners. Well, yeah, it's a good question. And I think uh, in Vermont, you're going to see that law change. Um, there are a lot of stakeholders from the recreation industry who are working with the state to change that legislation. And, you know, because there's no reason that the logging industry should get that advantage and the recreation industry shouldn't. You know, Vermont is, as Abby Long, the executive director of Kingdom Trail Association said, if Vermont's going to tout itself as the outdoor mecca of New England, then you got to recognize what what that mecca is built on in that in their case it's private landowners so yeah they're they're trying to figure out what the best way is to incentivize them whether it is a tax break as you mentioned or a direct payment but either way you can't lose your liability if you accept that money so that's i don't think that's going to be too long until that changes you know they had the governor of vermont in east burke riding the kingdom trails you know and and his eyes were open so once you get enough people to understand how this equation is is really playing out on a local level, I don't think that law will will be in place too long. But I think that um, any state that relies on recreation as um, as an economic driver in any to any degree should be incentivizing private landowners to do the same thing because it can only benefit everybody and. I mean, if you have a private landowner who wants to let the public on their property to go have fun and it might help support their community, what's wrong with that? Granted, um, you need the infrastructure, you need the parking, places for people to camp or stay or whatever and eat and drink. And you need so many more things to be in place for that whole model to be a success. But I think uh, in general, you know, given the challenges with access and public and private land that the true visionaries moving forward are going to be the ones that understand that and create a system locally that will work and it can work and it can work for everybody. So in that sense, I think that kingdom trails reaching their tipping point can benefit a a lot of places around the country. Yeah. Here in Wisconsin, um, we have similar laws, the recreational immunity stuff in terms of like letting people onto your property and where I live, especially, there's a lot of access granted onto private land for stream access, specifically for fly fishing. Uh, fly fishing is really huge um, in the area that, that I live. And I've said, and, and these, this uh, policy or legislature, however you want to spin it, was written before the mountain bike was probably even a thought, you know, early 80s, late 70s type of stuff. And I've often compared that to to mountain biking and how we just need to, you know, have those rules evolve or policies evolve as outdoor recreation evolves. Right. Same with snowmobiles. You know, there's a lot of snowmobile access where I live in the winter and people bring up liability. When I bring up access to private land for mountain biking, I bring up, I, I, 
people ask about the liability and I say, well, what about snowmobiles? You know, we have snowmobiles on private land here. What's a snowmobile, Josh? I'm just What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's, we're, on a, we're talking about trails. Well, they're, they're this machine with an engine and a couple, ski, and a couple skis in the front and track in the back. And if you're in the X Games, they do flips. Um, <laughs> but really, you look at that, you know, and I don't want to bag on that, any kind of outdoor recreation sport, but a lot of the trails where we live when it comes to snowmobile access start and end at bars. And they do like 100 miles an hour between those bars. There's a liability there. <laughs> you know, and so to get people outside into nature, appreciating nature, um, there's a lot. While there are negatives, obviously, as we've discussed, there's also a lot of benefits, you know. So, so with that being said, what other type of, uh, what other topics have interested you in terms of writing that you've kind of delved, dove into, um, just generally speaking? Um, I mean, if you talk to any good freelance writer, they're like, yeah, I just like a good story. Um, and that's ultimately what I'm always interested in. But, uh, yeah, in terms of stuff in the works right now, um, I do do some stuff on, on mental health and the way that intersects with the outdoor industry, the adventure world, and in particular, in a lot of our mountain communities. I just filed a story. We had a, uh, a youth, an adolescent mental health crisis in Summit County, Colorado last year, and, and uh, two young teenage boys took their lives, and a lot of others. There were, I mean, this whole county was in crisis for a while. This is mid-pandemic, early in the pandemic, um, and it drove a lot of fear and, and just reckoning for our whole community. We have a problem with suicide. Our, our rate is twice the national average. And uh, so I just filed a story that I've been working on for many months on that. And that was for 5280 Magazine, the city magazine in Denver. And uh, I'm working on another story about an avalanche death down in Silverton, Colorado, in the San Juan Mountains uh, that occurred in a, an advanced avalanche education course. And that will be out at some point later this year. And I got a couple others that are in the more gestational phase, but in general, you know, I, I like to, I did come from a newspaper background and was writing four stories a day at some points, but um, I like to really spend a lot of time. A lot of the stories that I do have been in the works for more than a year. And it takes that much time in a lot of cases to get to the right people who have the most informed perspectives on something. And a lot of these stories are really tough and sticky and, and edgy yet, you know, I feel like need to be told and bring a benefit from being told for readers. And especially when it does come to mental health, you know, promote a greater understanding of how devastating it is, how it can happen to anybody. You know, just because you're feeling good and strong and stable right now doesn't mean two weeks from now some things might have unfolded in your life and you lose the grip. And uh, I think recognizing that in particular, you know, a mental health crisis can happen to the most stable of us is a true deep recognition that few in our society really have. And in, in a lot of cases, I think it's because we don't know someone who's gone through a mental health crisis or a, a real struggle, or we haven't ourselves. But I think broadening that understanding and just allowing people to understand that sickness is not only something physical, you know, um, that's something that's real personal to me. And and so I'm drawn to stories like that, and they're really difficult as well. But uh, um, I wrote one, came out uh, in February, called The Final Descent of Dean Cummings, a, uh, a world champion extreme skier and heli ski guide in Valdez, Alaska, who, um, whose mental health deteriorated and whose stability went with it. And for a year and a half, he was on an odyssey around the American West, and he ultimately shot and killed a man in the New Mexico desert. And uh, he has been charged with murder and it's a really, really sensitive subject. Um, but yeah, that ran an outside in, uh, in February and 
I think helped a lot of people understand what happened. And so that's often what I'm striving for is to just bring a, a deeper understanding of what goes on in this wild world of ours. And a lot of times it does intersect with adventure. And in that sense, uh, it's even more near and dear to me because I love the adventure world and the adventure life and, you know, riding my bike and skiing big peaks and doing all the fun stuff. But yeah, uh, nobody's life is perfect. So, yeah. Well, as you know, I've struggled with my own issues in, in that sense, especially a couple of years ago. And one thing you, you made a comment a couple of minutes ago about um, people not knowing about it or maybe not knowing somebody that's dealt with it. Um, one thing I found, which was because I felt the same way, and I'm sure you found this, is that there actually are a lot more people than we know. We all know people that are dealing with this, but no one talks about it. Yeah, very few do. And, you know, for this story on the teen suicides, I got to interview one of the, the moms of the boys and I got to interview both moms, but one had not spoken at all publicly uh, for more than a year. And I sat down with her last week and, you know, she said she was just so in her own world of hurt. But as she did begin speaking to people, she realized how many more, as you put it right there, Josh, like how many more people have a real personal painful connection to, in this case, suicide. But, um, you know, I personally, I lost my best friend from college to suicide. My aunt, my mom's only sibling, you know, her sister uh, died by suicide well into her adult years when she was a mom. And, and uh, it's so painful and so, so personal and private, but it really does help to talk to people about it. And it just, it doesn't come easily though. And, and it's a lot easier to talk to someone about it who can relate. And she said, you know, once I found out so many more people have a connection to suicide, whether it was a relative or a sibling or a friend or a friend of your best friend or whatever that is, you know, you, you can talk to somebody else who's felt a similar pain and there is a suddenly a shared struggle and, and you just get to exhale a little more, you know, knowing that the person listening to you and you know, sharing their own story with you can relate. You know, it goes so far if you can talk to someone who can relate. And, and in some cases, you know, you talk to people who can't relate and hopefully they're sympathetic and understanding. But absolutely, these, uh, these problems as deep and covert in a lot of cases, cloaked by our own fears um, as they are, they're a lot more common than our defensive brains let us believe. And once you are able to kind of break through that, you're able to just spread out your pain a little more and I think uh, get through life a little easier. Not easy, but easier. Yeah. And as you pointed out, you know, there's no, you could be part of some of the most affluent um, have the most affluent upbringing and have access to all sorts of stuff in it, you know, it doesn't discriminate. You know, people have different things in their heads and people have different triggers and trauma points and things they have to heal from or things that happen when they're children, you know, and it's just on the, just because someone on the outside looks like they're put together, you know, that's not always the case, you know, and I think talking about it is, is huge and having someone that'll just listen maybe not always provide answers because sometimes providing answers is a really bad thing I've found, but someone that can just listen and kind of empathize with you. Powerful. You know? Absolutely. Yep. So, the power of that is a lot more than we think it could be sometimes. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, well, Devin, you write for a lot of people. You've done a lot of things. You've been able to travel to a lot of places. Do you have any, any type of closing comments or points that you want to, you know, things you want to talk about, but, you know, before I wrap this one up, thank yous, anything that you really want to, you know, kind of leave the listeners with? Um, not really. I think uh, life is long. You know, we get stuck in thinking like whatever 
problem is ailing us right then is just so controlling and dominating that you lose sight of how long life is. And I, you know, yeah, I've gotten to go plays and do the story, whatever, but, um, just, I think respecting how beautiful life is fragile it is and that it is long and, you know, it doesn't have to be awesome for every minute of, of your lifetime. You know, you can get through an access issue if we're just talking about mountain biking or a tough stretch. I don't know. I just come back to like, Hey, calm down. Today sucks. <laughs> Kids are screaming, fighting each other, whatever. It's not working out for you. You can't ride the trail you want to ride. Someone's cut off access or, you know, someone, you know, struggling, you might be struggling, whatever. It, it, it's, way easier said than done but i do try and come back to just life's long you know give it a chance to simmer down and and then take what you've learned from going through that challenging stretch and put it to use is there any uh and i'll put the stuff in the show notes too but is there any places you'd like to point people to 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 get some of your writing obviously beta beta for those who don't know we you kind of touched on this is the new it's the reincarnation of bike magazine You'd know this better than me, but I believe it has pretty much all the same players. It does. Uh, it made Mike Magazine great. Yep. Same editor, Nicole Formosa. Um, Anthony Smith, the photo director. Travis Engel runs the gear coverage. Ryan Palmer, senior editor with Classic Wit. And uh, Satchel Kronk's doing everything video and visual. So yeah, same players. And uh, they just put out their first issue, premiere issue in the spring. This one that we talked about will be the second that's coming out this summer. And there are four print issues and a really robust um, online presence as well. It's betamtb.com. Yeah. And so the podcast that I'm in the middle of editing while we're recording this was done in, with the uh, tourism director for White Pine County in Ely, Nevada. I didn't know this, but the kind of the, this came out when I was talking to to Kyle Horvath in that and only and why I reached out to Kyle because of beta because of the story of of Ely Nevada and the fact that it is becoming a trail it is becoming a, a booming trail community it's got a lot of access that doesn't have a lot of the issues we've talked about or many of the or many or if any of the issues we've talked about because Nevada is a place that does things that most other states don't do <laughs> in general um with some of their rules and laws and I guess there's some they allow open road car racing in places out there and Stuff that just, you know, most places would really cringe at, right? But Kyle said that, you know, when they were there to do a bike Bible of test, and one of their bike Bible tests for Bike Magazine, when they got the news that bike was folding. And they still worked together and pulled it off. And that became the first round of tests that you can see in Beta Magazine and on YouTube for Beta Magazine or Beta MTV which is an interesting story in itself. I didn't expect to get that out of the story with Kyle. I, you know, I really wanted to talk about why their community is booming, what they've had for access, what they have gotten for grants and why they're building this community of 9,000 people in Eastern Nevada, why they're making it such a great outdoor destination. So that was an in interesting one. No doubt. So I'm, uh, I'm uh, a touch removed as a freelancer from, from uh, those brainstorming sessions, but I was thrilled that Beta came out of the shuttering of Bike. You know, these are really talented people who know how to run a good magazine and and who know exactly what makes this sport so awesome. I'm just here to tell the stickier stories. Yeah, and the in the coverage in in that magazine is super diverse. You know. It's everything from racing to gear to everything, you know. So there's something for everybody that is interested in what we do mm -hmm. in that magazine. So, which makes it pretty special. Yep. So, Devin, thank you. This was great. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Pleasure talking to you and seeing your face on my screen right now. And uh, just counting the days till you make it happen and get out to Breckenridge to ride your bike. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, please remember to leave a comment and rate the show wherever you consume your podcasts. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, 
Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people that feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>